Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the new authoritarian age in America, with a national movement underway to ban books, ideas, knowledge, and history in 44 states, with 18 states having passed laws that criminalize classroom discussion and intimidate and punish educators. Joining us is Jason Stanley, the Jacob Urowski Professor of Philosophy at Yale University and the author of How Propaganda Works, which was the winner of the 2016 Prose Award for Philosophy. His latest book is How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them, and we will discuss his article at The Guardian, Banning Ideas and Authors is Not a Culture War, It's Fascism and explore the Orwellian nature of these laws based on the absurdity that the anguish of the dominant white racial group is such that the history of cruelty towards black Americans can no longer be taught or acknowledged. Then we'll look into the pious bigots behind the $20 million advertising buy at the Super Bowl for a hip and cool Jesus who gets us. Joining us is Frederick Clarkson, a senior fellow at Political Research Associates and an analyst of the religious right for over 30 years. He has worked as communication director at the Institute for Democracy Studies and co-founded the important group blog about the Christian right, Talk to Action. His books include Dispatches from the Religious Left, The Future of Faith and Politics in America, and Eternal Hostility, The Struggle Between Theocracy and Democracy. He has a new series of essays on the New Apostolic Reformation, The Cutting Edge of the Christian Right, at the online magazine Religion Dispatches. Then finally we'll get an update on the February 3rd derailment of a 150-car train carrying hazardous chemicals in Ohio, after which it was decided to burn the rail cars carrying vinyl chloride to prevent an explosion. Joining us to discuss the delayed and insufficient information about the toxic gases and groundwater contamination is Andrew Welton, a professor of environmental and ecological engineering at Purdue University, whose research focuses on environmental chemistry and engineering, disasters, polymer science and engineering, water quality, infrastructure, and public health. His team investigates and solves problems that affect our natural and built environments. And joining us now, Jason Stanley, the Jacob Urowski Professor of Philosophy at Yale University and the author of How Propaganda Works, which was the winner of the 2016 Prose Award for Philosophy. His latest book is How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them. And he has an article at The Guardian, Banning Ideas and Authors is Not a Culture War, It's Fascism. Welcome to Background Briefing. It's Jason Stanley. Thank you so much, Ian. Good to be in conversation. Well, thank you so much. And... I'm astounded at the Orwellian nature of these laws that are being passed now. They're in 44 states, as you, as you point out in your article, and 18 states have already passed laws to criminalize classroom discussion and intimidate and punish educators. But it's all in this kind of Orwellian rubric, which is the absurdity that the anguish of the dominant white racial group in this country is such that the history of cruelty towards black Americans can no longer be taught or acknowledged. It's like, boo-hoo, what? <laughs> Poor babies, what's going on with our country? Why, why are we even taking seriously this outrageous presumption 
and usurpation? Well, I don't think it's uh, it's uh, well, first of all, as a number of people have pointed out to me over email, it's 20 states have banned have passed such laws in different ways, some through their boards of education. Uh, so so I underestimated the number of of states. And of course, in some of the states, they target public universities as well. So this fear of structural racism, this fear of being confronted with the idea that there are downstream effects uh, of what your white ancestors did that contribute to your current prosperity and other people's uh, current uh, lack of prosperity. Uh, this is of such threat that uh, 20 states uh, have banned the concepts that allow you to think these thoughts. Now, does this make us special? No, uh, as Timothy Snyder points out in his memory laws piece uh, from uh, a couple of years ago, Many authoritarianism goes with these memory laws. Uh, Putin's Russia passed laws making it illegal to teach about Soviet crimes uh, during the World War II and the Nazi era in general. So m most Russian citizens don't know about Soviet crimes in Ukraine. Uh, Poland passed a law saying that it's illegal to speak about uh, Polish concentration camps. Um, you know, you have to be, you know, you have to do anything to avoid uh, attributing any responsibility uh, to Poland uh, for what happened. So so these these laws, uh, of course, you know, India, Hungary, all these countries in which democracy is folding and collapsing uh, are passing these laws. So what would be surprising, it would be if if democracy, uh, if if. if if we had the, the attack on democracy and we didn't have these laws. It's no accident that the states that pass these laws are also the states that are engaged in voter suppression, various, uh, you know, the, the politicians who push these laws are also the ones who express skepticism about uh, about the election, et cetera. Um, but that, you know, these, these states in which these laws are being passed are also the states in which uh, voter suppression measures are being passed. So, these go together. The form our fascism has always taken has been white nationalism. So you just expect that if America were going in the Hungary direction, a country where there is no more free press at all, where the schools are taken over by nationalist nonsense, uh, where anti-Semitic figures are being lionized and Jews being Jewish writers being removed from the curricula, that you one would expect if that's happening here, these laws would be passing here too. So from an international perspective, it would be surprising if it weren't happening. So what is the, the emotional appeal in terms of both the religious right, they believe uh, that they're persecuted somehow, when in fact they control the Supreme Court and have enormous uh, power and influence. And it's the same with right-wing politics. I mean, if you, if you watched the response to President Biden's State of the Union by Sarah Huckabee, you would think the streets of America were running wild with woke people attacking and destroying the tranquility and lives of poor, beleaguered Americans who just want to be left alone with their freedom. Now, I don't want to make an analogy between... There is no analogy to be drawn between the far right, the extreme right, Sarah Huckabee Sanders of the world, 
and Hitler. There, there isn't. But the, on the on the line of politics, there is. There is no bigger whiner. I mean, if you read, you know, if, if you know Hitler is going on and on about the suffering of the German people, the terrible suffering, the threat facing them from, uh, from you know this this the, the, the from minority groups, uh, foreigners. Uh, you know the 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 Marxists, the Jews who want to take over the education system, uh, and 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 argue that uh, argue against German national identity and erode German national identity. Uh, so this structure of politics that appeals to dominant group grievances is very popular. Uh, Victor Orban, uh, the politician who Americans are the American right is explicitly and openly emulating said that uh, white Christians are the most persecuted group in the world, which just factually I would I would venture is not true. Uh, and uh, so so this politics of dominant group grievance, it is the heart of fascist politics. Uh, what you're doing is you're making the dominant group fear that their power, that they're losing their power. And look, you know, it's not like they're wrong about this, right? I mean, Christian nationalists, uh, Christian nationalists are openly, they openly think that unless they do something, they will lose power. They will, they will not run the nation anymore. Uh, so they have to, they have to make it, put it on war footing. They have to, they want to run the nation. <laughs> they want to run the nation, whether they're a minority or not. And so they want to uh, control the concepts. Um, that's, that's just uh, internationally and theoretically the way to go. Uh, and it extends a fight. It's also worth mentioning, uh, as a, a student of mine actually pointed out in my office hours today, Taylor, uh, it, it, it's worth mentioning this goes back in American history all the way to the antebellum South when David Walker's uh, appeal was published in 1829. Uh, they tried to ban it, fearing that it would lead to social movements, revolutions against slavery. Throughout the Jim Crow era, they banned uh, they banned concepts and uh, and and histories. Uh, so chapter nine of Carter G. Woodson's Miseducation of the Negro, published in 1931, uh, is called Political Education Denied. And it's about how they, they banned black schools from having copies of the Constitution because they didn't want them to have these concepts. So this, this so the thought, the thought here is, you know, we're gonna ban the concepts that are necessary for understanding uh, for understanding what the dominant group white, in this case, white Americans has done. And we're gonna ban the concepts required for understanding how we could challenge their power. And all in the name of hurting their sensitive feelings about having to feel anguish. And you point out in your article, Jason Stanley at The Guardian, is that the Germans, after the Nazis were defeated, they taught their kids about what really happened during the Nazi period. And they, as a result, this is a country that's, as you point out, is about the world's most stable liberal democracy. Presumably, these young German kids felt some anguish, <laughs> but oh, it was I, necessary. It basically sort of washed away the, the sins by dealing with them as opposed to suppressing history. Yeah, I mean, and of course, there are constant fights. I mean, I went to school in Germany and it caused these, you know, I went to high school in Germany for a year and and, of, and it caused great, great anguish among German 
students to be confronted with what their ancestors had done. Uh, but the, well, it was their fathers and grandfathers. I mean, it wasn't really... Uh, fathers and grandfathers, exactly. Thank you for reminding me that. Yes, uh, their grandfathers. In my case, it was their grandparents who are still alive and like 70 years old. So, uh, so it caused great anguish. Nevertheless, they did it. And if the world... And if, Ger if the German far right ever succeeded, as they have been in their plan, which they're, they have been pushing for a long time, to end this kind of Holocaust education, nobody would be fooled, right? Everyone would see it for what it was. Uh, and, and another point, uh, another point about this removal of key concepts and histories is that, like, if you take an example, like, Suppose that these laws were trying to ban the concept of sexual harassment. Everybody would see immediately what was going on, right? You couldn't get away with saying, okay, we're gonna ban the concept of sexual harassment and it's not political. <laughs> Everyone would see that banning the concept of sexual harassment was what had an aim to like shield men, help patriarchy. Yet, here they are banning the concept of intersectionality. Uh, you know, and no, and there isn't a similar outcry. So this idea that banning concepts and banning histories is abolishing uh, ide ideology, is, is abolishing indoctrination, it's, it's completely absurd. I mean, wh what are they worried about? That if you're exposed to these histories and these concepts, they'll be so powerful that They'll just take you over. <laughs> right, but if we were truly understood our history and had the guilt that is absolutely appropriate in terms of the extermination of the Native Americans and then the indentured slavery of African Americans and enormous cruelty and then the long period of Jim Crow and then up and through the, to the 1960s, uh, there was still lynching going on in the South. So if we understood our history, we would be guilty, but we're not. I don't think most Americans are guilty about exterminating the Native Americans. They're certainly not guilty about the fact that the Native Americans are living in still in marginal communities and poverty, and right. the, the injustices still haven't been dealt with, and the injustices towards African Americans are not only not acknowledged, but they still haven't been dealt with. So is that what's going on here? It's not, it's not just that. It's that they're actively trying to ban the teaching of these histories. And they're actively trying to ban the concepts that we need to understand how these histories uh, impacted the present. So it's not just that, you know, there's some failure. 20 states have passed laws making it illegal, essentially, to teach them, to, to give people the understanding for how that the history affects the present. So right. it's an active movement. And you have to see that active movement as part of a fascist social and political movement of the sort that's happening in many countries right now. And all of them come with this aspect. So you mentioned Hungary's authoritarian leader, Viktor Orban. He's definitely the role model for this movement here in the United States and for the new Republican Party. He's also, believe it or not, the role model again for uh, Netanyahu in Israel, and he's now going after Israeli democracy. Uh, massive. I don't know whether you saw the massive demonstrations in Israel over the weekend. 
against his Netanyahu's borrowing from Orban to politically control the Supreme Court, to control the judiciary. And in, in, in Netanyahu's case, he's got a dog in the fight because uh, he's trying to stay out of jail. I mean, absolutely right. These far right movements are all connected. They borrow from each other. There's a playbook. Uh, my book, How Fascism Works, it tells you that playbook as a chapter called Anti-Intellectualism, which is about the attack on the schools and the universities. So fascism involves, you know, drawing in the financial elite in a war against the, the so-called cultural elite to bring the masses behind to to bring a larger the dominant majority behind a program of like benefiting the business the business world, so that's the structure we're seeing. They're saying your real enemies are are the universe. You know, like like J D Vance said, uh, uh, quoting I, I believe Nixon, the, the the professors are the enemy. Um, so the idea is to say, you know, th this is what Viktor Orban did. He ran against Putin. Did this too. They ran against the universities, the liberalism, the Marxism, the supposed, you know, the feminism, LGBT. And so, and they're imitated, like uh, Florida's don't say gay bill. And now what we're seeing is we're seeing banning drag shows all across the country to anyone 18 or under, under 18. This is uh, an explicit imitation of Russia's 2013 Gay Propaganda Act, which made it illegal to have any representations of, quote, non-standard relationships to minors. So we're seeing a lot of this borrowing uh, of authoritarian tactics. And your point about Israel and Hungary, yeah, I mean, Netanyahu is imitating Orban, who Orban is, you know, Orban is a wildly popular far-right authoritarian nationalist autocrat <laughs> who's uh, brought the country under his control, and that's what the Republican Party wants to do here, and they want to do it by bringing in the Christian nationalists and telling them that our deal for you is in exchange for for supporting lower taxes on the billionaires, and you know we'll make sure that you get the country you want. Well, the the only way to stand up to fascism is to stand up to, against fascism, and at the very least, uh, we shouldn't be buying this absurdity that these poor beleaguered people are, are too sensitive to deal with the realities of history. I mean, are we going to get tough? Otherwise, they're going to roll over us. That's exactly right. Because one has to understand these are this uh, white Christian, this, this you know, fascism, the dominant group in, in the case of America, you know, um, the, the group they're appealing to, you know, white, white Christian, white Christians, uh, it's like they're the most delicate flowers in the world. Like they can't hear anything that intervenes with their perspective that they might be, that they they might have some have some guilt or some some problematic past. And notice the point I also make in the article: these laws are manifestly totally incoherent because they they ban concepts that that create anguish that may create anguish in people because of their race, but. Banning these concepts will create anguish in black Americans because of their race, because they won't be able. Uh, first of all, the lack of the histories uh, will will give them anguish, just like it would if I went to school in, in Germany, if they hadn't taught Holocaust history properly, I would have felt anguish as the child of Holocaust survivors. Um, descendants of enslaved Americans feel the same way about their history. And secondly, uh, you're robbing them of the concepts to to 
that allow them to explain why many of them are born in poverty or in relative poverty relative to whites. They're gonna, without the concepts of critical race theory, they're gonna think it's because their their families were lazy or their parents were lazy or something like that. And that's gonna cause them anguish. So the group whose feelings are being protected are white people. Well, Jason Stanley, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you so much, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Jason Stanley, who's a Jacob Uraski Professor of Philosophy at Yale University and the author of How Propaganda Works, which was a winner of the 2016 Prose Award for Philosophy. His latest book is How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them. And he has an article at The Guardian, Banning Ideas and Authors is Not a Culture War, It's Fascism. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into the pious bigots behind the $20 million advertising buy at the Super Bowl for a hip and cool Jesus who gets us. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Frederick Clarkson, a senior fellow at Political Research Associates and an analyst of the religious right for over 30 years. He has worked as communications director at the Institute for Democracy Studies and co-founded the important group blog about the Christian right, Talk to Action. His books include Dispatches from the Religious Left, The Future of Faith and Politics in America, and Eternal Hostility, the Struggle Between Theocracy and Democracy. And he has a new series of essays on the New Apostolic Reformation, the cutting edge of the Christian right, at the online magazine Religion Dispatches. Welcome to Background Briefing, Frederick Clarkson. Uh, Thank you, Ian. Uh, Good to be with you again. Well, thanks for joining us. And at the Super Bowl, many people saw an ad. It was a $20 million advertising buy for a hip and cool Jesus who gets us. So how did Jesus become a product? (laughs) Well, uh, I guess in the age of advertising, everything becomes commercialized, including faith and including Jesus. We see it uh, to sell commercial products. We see it to sell politics. We have Jesus to to actually promote uh, charitable works and, uh, and good deeds as well. You know, Jesus becomes pretty much however people want to imagine and use Jesus. So what do you think is the motive behind these wealthy donors behind the Servant Foundation, which has donated more than $50 million to the Alliance Defending Freedom between 2018 and 2020? What's their motive? Boy, you know, I I, I wish I could see it as a, 
as the more benign version of Christian charity that's going on there and seems to be the main theme in, uh, in a lot of the commercials. And I've seen a number of them on TV and, and on their website. But, you know, you have to consider the, the motive of, of the donor. And as you say, $50 million to the Alliance Defending Freedom over three years, you know, suggests uh, at least two motives. Now, the Alliance Defending Freedom is a Christian right legal group who was responsible for the Hobby Lobby decision of the Supreme Court, which made uh, uh, private corporations, you know, have a, uh, allowed them to have a religious identity. And in this case, the issue was whether uh, a corporation could say no, the insurance uh, company, insurance plans, you know, that, that we sponsor can't fund contraception, Right. That's what that was about. But it gave, for the first time, religious identity to a private corporation. Uh, and the Alliance Defending Freedom also helped to write uh, the legislation in Mississippi that became the subject of the Dobbs decision of the Supreme Court that overturned Roe v. Wade. These folks are at the very center of a theocratic political movement in our country. They undermine the public schools. They are anti-science. One of the grants they gave, I was looking at their 990s uh, just before our call, gave $18 million to Answers in Genesis, which is an organization that has the, uh, uh, you know, a, a life-size, they say, uh, replica of the uh, of Noah's Ark, and that the entire museum is dedicated to the idea that uh, uh, of creation science and shows, you know, dinosaurs living at the same time as, as humans. Uh, it's uh, it's a it's a re re the servant foundation is a remarkable entity, and so are many of the grantees. They're, pre they're presenting a very different vision of society than they present in their uh, warm and fuzzy uh, commercials. But they've also been spending money uh, and lobbying against LGBTQ issues. Uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center has described the Alliance Defending Freedom as a, as a hate group. And, you know, they're arguing now before the Supreme Court, in fact, a case that would enable the plaintiffs to discriminate against LGBTQ customers. They're also behind the banning of the abortion, chemical abortion pill, Mifepristone, which is used in half of the abortions performed in the United States. So they're behind that. And the ad buy for the He Gets Us campaign is apparently they're going to invest a billion dollars over the next three years in this branding campaign. So what I find troubling about it, I mean, it's, it's been criticism of these, these ads from the Super Bowl from both the left and the right, but what they're trying to recover from is they invested so heavily in Trump, and Trump is the, the instrument of hate and division, and now they're saying we shouldn't hate and let's all come together after the damage is done. Yeah, I, I think that's certainly a dimension of it. Uh, it's also true that, uh, you know, uh, institutional Christianity is in decline in the United States and, uh, and has been for some time. And uh, that seems to be a trend that uh, will continue. It doesn't mean that people stop being religious or Christian in some nominal way. It's just the institutions themselves are in decline. So one could argue that this is an effort to you know, rehabilitate the image of Christianity and to make people desire to want to be a part of it, you know, perhaps in its institutional, uh, institutional form. In that case, it's a public relations campaign, you know, 
uh, not for Jesus, but for institutional Christianity. Well, I, for the life of me, have never understood why the Christian right in this country comes across uh, and seems to be obsessed with the idea that they're persecuted. Now, maybe it's, you know, they, they want to be like Jesus uh, on the cross and be martyrs, but they're inventing martyrdom. They're inventing the idea that they're beleaguered. I mean, uh, Rush Limbaugh's brother wrote a book about how Christians in this country are persecuted. I mean, the, <laughs> the first Christians who came here persecuted other Christians and they burned witches. Uh, I don't understand where they get this idea. These are the people, by the way, who control the Supreme Court. They put in a majority of these arch-conservative justices, and somehow they're persecuted against, and they're beleaguered. Where does this come from? Well, I, I think it comes from the idea that uh, uh, of a certain kind of entitlement, a certain inevitability of the advancement of the kingdom of God as they see it. And anything that gets in the way of that, right, is defined as persecution of the church. So all the individual situations, you know, an argument about whether one thing or another should be taught in the public schools, uh, that sort of thing is defined as persecution of Christianity and of individual Christians. Uh, the term persecution, you know, to, you know seems uh, excessive to the kind of routine disputes that one has in a democratic, religiously plural society. I think of persecution. I think of people who are actually losing their lives for their faith in, in, in history and in other countries, you know, all the time, even right now. So minor civic disputes described as persecution is ridiculous anti-democratic hyperbole, right? And... Uh, uh, and it's a great disservice, I think, to the very causes uh, that uh, that they're seeking to promote, because it inevitably leads to divisiveness and uh, uh, and, and, and lack of understanding. If they're looking for support, crying persecution at, at every uh, <laughs> when they hit a roadblock is uh, is not a good way to get it. So, but their campaign seems to be ultimately about ending the separation between church and state. This is creeping theocracy, is it not? Uh, I think that's the intention, part of the intention. And uh, I mean, you notice that uh, in, in the ads, they're, they're all about ideas of, you know, individual acts of forgiveness or individual acts of charity. And, uh, and those are all good things. You know, who can disagree with that? But there's no idea of the, of the, of the commons, the greater good, the organization of society, you know, to provide for itself, and uh, uh, and particularly the idea of democracy. I mean, we live in a pluralist society. We are multi-faced, and we always have been. And the idea of religious equality is foundational to the idea of equality under the law and equality of citizenship. A sort of creeping Christian triumphalism that turns people uh, who or of other faiths, or no faiths, or so Christians who may disagree with them on such matters of social justice as access to abortion and LGBTQ rights. I mean, there are a majority, arguably a majority of Christians in the United States who believe in those things. And, you know, perhaps they're the ones who are being persecuted by the uh, definition that the evangelicals put out. So, uh, yeah, I think that uh, the, the vision is... Uh, 
is based on fundamentally a form of religious bigotry and is anti-democratic and certainly headed in the direction of, uh, of theocracy or some or some something closely akin to it. But you could make the case that David Green, the billionaire founder of Hobby Lobby, he managed to get the Supreme Court, and we now we know that he was having little private prayer sessions in the Supreme Court and funneling money through their their charity front that they have. He gets this Supreme Court to write an opinion which benefits him in the sense that under the Affordable Care Act, he doesn't have to pay for the uh, contraceptives of any of his employees. That was the basis of his case. So who's being persecuted there, David Green or his employers? Well, his employees, you know, clearly, because, you know, just because one, you know, works for a certain company or, say, a Catholic hospital, you know, or wherever one happens to be employed, I mean, the institution doesn't necessarily or shouldn't at all be able to impose their religious views on their employees, right? They shouldn't be, uh, be policing people's beliefs and behavior, you know? You're just working for a living. So it, it's an outrageous presumption that's going on here, and, and it's a trend, and it's not limited to David Green and, and, uh, and Hobby Lobby, as the Catholic Church is actively pursuing the same agenda. So it's a, uh, it's a real danger to the integrity of religious freedom and equality under the law in the country for these kinds of things to go forward. The idea of using, you know, you know the, the compassion and charity of Jesus as a, as, as a public relations front for this agenda is, is offensive. Well, uh, I mentioned that there's criticism on the left and on the right, but on the right, the criticism was that they were being too nice to immigrants uh, at the border and saying, you know, they were upset that, how dare you not hate the immigrants? I mean, what's what has become of us that you have people defending hatred? Well, it wouldn't be the first time hatred was defended, certainly on the, on the matters of, uh, of, uh, of migrants, you know. You know, who are facing, you know, actual persecution in their own countries, you know, and are, you know, fleeing, you know, in the most authentic sense of being uh, politically persecuted and being refugees from tremendous persecution. The lack of Christian compassion in those instances is just appalling. The lack of curiosity and investigation of the circumstances that lead people to leave their homes is appalling. Well, one of the ads does say that Jesus was a refugee. I mean... The content of the ads is about the first time I've ever seen anything that's vaguely accurate in terms of what the Christian right has been propagating. Well, yeah, I was speaking to the objection that the elements of the right are giving to this ad. Right, I know. That's right. Not, every, not, all, not all the content of the ads is bad, as I said. And yes, Jesus was indeed a refugee. Right. And uh, certainly, uh, you know, cared for the poor and the marginalized. And, uh, you know, he like, was uh, also a community organizer. And a revolutionary. He was, <laughs> he'd, and he'd, he'd be in big trouble. For overturning the oh, tables yeah. of dangers in the temple. You know, when the commercial interests came into the temple and took over, he made a point of throwing them out. Right. You know, that was that's the only place, you know, in his ministry where he got visibly angry and physically violent. Right. It's easy for a camel to go to the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Indeed. Not exactly... Uh, what the Republican Party stands for. So where do we stand then in terms of, if you could spend a billion dollars 
on a touchy-feely Jesus in order to get over the fact that you, meaning these bigoted billionaires on the religious right, had this compact with Trump where instead of rejecting him, you venerated him. And in the case of this David Green, as a gesture of gratitude, he presented Donald Trump in 2017 with a gift of an original 1611 copy of King James's Bible. So you think they can buy forgiveness, if that's indeed what they're trying to do, trying to say that, that this is a new branding of the religious right, that we're sort of expropriating some of the religious left. You know, it's almost like what greenwashing is in, in the environmental movement. I don't know what this is, Jesus washing or something. <laughs> well, uh, you know, Jesus is supposed to wash the sins away, but, you know, I, I don't think that's what they're trying to do here. Uh, I don't think that there's any remorse about Trump uh, whatsoever. And, you know, uh, one of the things in reading about this at first and, you know, seeing $50 million spent on, on the Alliance Defending Freedom, and, you know, maybe I missed something, but I can't recall, you know, David Green ever spending $50 million directly on a charitable enterprise. You know, it's fine to produce ads saying Jesus, you know, was charitable, but what about David Green? I would like to see more about that if, it, in fact, it's ever happened. You know, I, I think it's a question of priorities, and I think you're right to raise the question of the intention of the of the the, the funders of this of this operation. On the one hand, you show the forgiving, charitable Jesus, and on the other hand, the backers of this are bankrolling a, a deeply reactionary uh, you know movement in the United States that's not remotely inclusive, not remotely forgiving, and not remotely charitable. Just in closing, is this essentially a white Christian operation in terms of what we have in a broader sense in this country, uh, which we're also talking about on today's program, the, how these religious right white Christians feel persecuted? Does that tie in with this also, this idea that, that we're too sensitive to be taught about the history of cruelty towards African-Americans and slavery, etc. Is there a connection there? Well, sure. Um, I, I think that the, the idea of there, uh, there being a, a demographic decline, you know, of, uh, of white people and uh, Christians in the United States is, has got some people scared. And they see, you know, they, they, they're fed a barrage of propaganda through Fox News and other outlets as, uh, as these slow-moving changes, you know, uh, being uh, an imminent threat to anybody. And, uh, but at the same time, I, I think that casting it all as all about uh, the defense of whiteness and white people lashing out uh, also misses the idea that the Christian right uh, and its most important element, you know, and we said at the top, top, the New Apostolic Reformation, these are Pentecostal and charismatic folks who uh, have gotten politically organized. Uh, you may remember Pat Robertson and his political campaign. And that movement has uh, uh, continued since then. But it's important to remember that it's that element, you know, is uh, is multiracial, multiethnic, and multinational you know, in in its orientation and in its vision for the United States and for the world. So 
it's important to recall, you know, the white racial reactionary element, you know, that uh, has driven particularly the earlier parts of, of the Christian right as we know them. But we also have to keep in mind that the Christian right itself has evolved and it's different than a lot of people may think. And just briefly, what is the new apostolic reformation? Uh, well, briefly, it's uh, the idea that comes out of a, a strain of Pentecostalism and, and the charismatic community that uh, thinks that uh, the Church should be reorganized according, according to, uh, uh, in, in the book of Ephesians, only five legitimate offices of the Church, the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, the teacher, and the evangelist. And all other churches, you know, are not valid. Denominations are not valid. The office of the Pope is not valid. But, you know, neither is the President of the United Church of Christ. They see all of these things as obstacles to advancing the Kingdom of God as they understand it. They have huge sweeping visions for, uh, you can't even call it radical change, you know, uh, a transcendent transformation of society as the kingdom of God comes sweeping in. They're fiercely anti-democratic. They're very politically organized and, uh, you know, and, uh, and underreported in our country. Well, Frederick Clarkson, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Well, thanks very much for having me in. Maybe we should and talk about the New Apostolic Reformation sometime. Indeed. And again, I've been speaking with Frederick Clarkson, who is a senior fellow at Political Research Associates and an analyst of the religious rights for over 30 years. He has worked as communication director at the Institute for Democracy Studies and co-founded the important group blog about the Christian right, Talk to Action. His books include Dispatches from the Religious Left, The Future of Faith and Politics in America, and Eternal Hostility, The Struggle Between Theocracy and Democracy. And he has a new series of essays on the new apostolic reformation, The Cutting Edge of the Christian Right, at the online magazine Religion Dispatches. We're going to take a brief station break and back with an update on the February 3rd derailment of a 150-car train carrying hazardous chemicals in Ohio and the delayed and insufficient information about the toxic gases and groundwater contamination as a result of the decision to burn the rail cars carrying vinyl chloride to prevent an explosion. Well, 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Andrew Welton, who is a professor of environmental and ecological engineering at Purdue University, whose research focuses on environmental chemistry and engineering, disasters, polymer science and engineering, water quality, infrastructure, and public health. His team investigates and solves problems that affect our natural and built environments. Welcome to Background Briefing, Andrew Welton. Thanks so much, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And this derailment in Ohio near the Pennsylvania border about a week and a half ago now is suddenly getting a lot more attention. The railway company decided to burn the, the chemicals to prevent an explosion. But now there are reports that the fish in the nearby creeks are dead and chickens are dying, etc., the footage I've seen on television shows a massive, massive black cloud. And I take it you're not convinced that the testing that says that the vinyl chloride no longer poses a threat to the people in this small town of East Palestine. You think there are other compounds that have been created by the fire? So I'm certain that other compounds were created by the fire. The spill is a disaster uh, unto itself. And I understand emergency responders and officials are trying to continue to get it under control and conduct testing. One of the real issues here, however, is that uh, state and federal agencies and even local agencies haven't been forthright about what they're doing, what they're finding, and why they're doing it. Uh, And that's what's kind of fueling the discussions um, currently. And the black cloud certainly was a, a real serious incident. So then walk us through the the various players here. Is the EPA doing a good job? Are they on top of this? Well, to my knowledge, the EPA is the only agency that's publicly sharing information uh, about the disaster in a website format. And so the EPA has a website, EPA uh, Region 5 on-scene coordinators, and they're posting documents, air testing results, Uh, information that they're getting from Norfolk Southern on a public website. I haven't yet seen any uh, state agencies or even local agencies providing similar information to the public. And the state agencies would be what? Does Ohio have an environmental protection agency? Under a situation like this, uh, the Ohio Department of Homeland Security Uh, would be initiated, an emergency operations center would be set up where they would handle the communications with federal agencies and local agencies. The Ohio EPA, or the state-level EPA, uh, is engaged, to my knowledge, as well as the Department of Public Health in the state, uh, but is unclear uh, what information they're providing the public to date and what exactly they're doing. And what's the uh, role of Norfolk Southern, since that's their train? And it was a huge, what, how many cars was it? 120 or something? Extraordinary number of cars. And a whole bunch of them uh, were derailed. So what's been the response from Norfolk Southern so far? Well, I haven't really been paying too much attention to Norfolk Southern's response. Generally, when the disaster happens and the responsible party is involved in spilling their product into the environment, it is responsibility of state, local, and federal agencies to take initiative and to protect the population from harm. 
And so my understanding is that Norfolk Southern has engaged the community and is offering free water testing and free air testing, but it's truly the responsibility of the agencies that people are paying taxes to, to look out for their best interest. Uh, and that is one of the gaps that's happening right now. We just don't really understand what these agencies are doing because they haven't been forthright in sharing information. And what do we do we know about the water table? The fact that f fish are dying in the creeks nearby, is there any possibility of this toxic chemicals going downstream into rivers that are sources of drinking water, et cetera? So going by the information that EPA, the federal EPA has released, they conducted water testing and found some contamination about one mile downstream, uh, very low levels of um, certain type of contamination downstream. But the water testing results really haven't been shared. They've been taking water testing results, but they haven't been publicly made available. There's no press conferences sharing that information. And so it's really uncertain about what scale of, of water contamination and the ash that fell from the combusted material, that big black cloud wasn't just gases. It contained a whole bunch of particulate matter where that went. Um, and then there were other chemicals that were released from the tanks, not just the gases that have been named in the press. Um, there was uh, plastic, polyethylene plastic, polyvinyl chloride plastic was burned, uh, and that released materials into the environment too. So the, the community and the state would be best served by providing all and available information to the public so they can make the best decisions for their families and friends. But it's my understanding, though, Andrew, that phosgene was created in the burn, and phosgene is a highly toxic gas that was used as a weapon in the First World War. Yes, that chemistry does happen uh, when you have chemicals like they had at the concentrations and uh, combust them. Uh, and so my understanding is EPA has been conducting uh, phosgene air testing and vinyl chloride air testing and such. Um, but as I mentioned, it, it, it's unclear about how they're going about doing this process and that information hasn't been shared. Um, so while the evacuation order has been lifted, there's really been no uh, story behind what they did, what they found, what they're going to do in the future about the safety of the, the area. Well, apparently there are 4.5 million tons of toxic chemicals shipped by rail each year in the country on an average of 12,000 rail cars carrying these hazardous materials passing through cities and towns. And, of course, this town of East Palestine has a population of only, what, 5,000? But there are other cities like Pittsburgh that are vulnerable to this potential, right? My understanding is that the railway freight companies, and there was a recent strike over working conditions and pay, that they've cut the numbers of workers to the bone. And at issue in the strike was being able to get sick leave. And the reason that they couldn't get sick leave is that they couldn't afford to have anybody not working because they're so understaffed. So that doesn't present a very reassuring picture. And there are millions of pounds of chemicals being transported by rail, by land, uh, and by freighter uh, across the United States and North America today. That's not going to change, but what has to change is oversight of the, the integrity of the system. 
in the checks and balances that are applied. So when there are accidents that are wholly preventable, that those organizations and industries don't just enable that to be routine operation, the cost of doing business. You know, there cannot be a cost to contaminating a town. It just should not happen. Um, and that's what, uh, looking forward, people need to think about as they evaluate how to prevent these types of disasters from occurring in the first place. But in terms of the railway companies themselves, are they understaffed? And given how many rail cars are carrying these toxic chemicals, I believe there's only two people aboard the train. And in this case, I think the bearings overheated and the axle broke, did it not? I don't know what an adequate crew is associated with the rail cars that derailed or in industry. Well, what we do know is that there was, for example, in Quebec, Canada in 2013, there was a runaway train that exploded in a town where 47 people were killed. So these kind of accidents have happened before. Obviously, the Quebec one is worse, much worse in terms of loss of life. But we don't know what the long-term after effects of this accident or derailment in uh, East Palestine are. We don't. We know how to approach the disaster, how to immediately protect people from harm, how to move them out of the way, and then what types of questions are going to be asked. We know that from other disasters that have involved rail cars, but, but chemical spills in other states and elsewhere. One of the issues that we're, we're not seeing now in East Palestine in the state of Ohio is a very concerted effort to openly share the information and the decision-making process with determining the safety of the community, the waterways, the soil in the area. So, I mean, it's a week and a half ago since this happened, and it seems like people are belatedly waking up. What explains that, Andrew, The now there seems to be more focus on it than there was initially. Is that because of the, the lack of information? So I have been asked over the last 10, 11 days to, to weigh in on the issue, and I have uh, not done so because I assumed that at any point government agencies would, would weigh in and provide a story. Uh, uh, this is what happened. This is what we found. This is what we're doing about it, and this is looking forward. And I haven't done that yet. So talking with uh, many disaster response and emergency management um, experts, many of them are just shocked at how uh, that hasn't happened yet. And they all were waiting for the shoe to drop and it never did. So I think the, the point is uh, people are being allowed back. They don't have answers to a lot of questions and, and somebody has to speak up and that's what you're seeing. So are you suggesting, Andrew, that the residents shouldn't be returning to their homes in East Palestine? I'm suggesting, actually, I, if it was my home, I would be demanding the government officials that did the testing or said they did the testing, put all their cards on the table openly and honestly and show me what they found and tell me how they came to the decisions that they said they came to. Because it is unacceptable to just have blind faith in organizations if they are not willing to share with you how they came to that. Decision. Well, they're also apparently only testing for vinyl chloride. And aren't there other dangerous and toxic compounds? We mentioned phosgene among them. 
based on the review of EPA's data, they are testing for other contaminants in the air, not just phosgene. But the information that's provided online, they also mention that they're testing for VOCs. Well, there's hundreds of VOCs that are potentially that you could test for. Which ones are they testing for? What are they finding? This type of information and conversation needs to be happening between the officials that are managing the response at the state and federal level with the population. And I have yet to see that happen. And what's a VOC? Volatile organic compound. These are organic chemicals. Uh, vinyl chloride is a VOC. And so if you put, for example, vinyl chloride in water, it will want to be out of the water and evaporate into the air. So volatile organic compound or VOC means that the chemical doesn't really want to be in the water. It wants to be in the air more. So what is the situation with so much LNG traveling on rails and in, in these long rail cars? Is that a potential hazard, the idea that you could have a collision and, or a derailment like this one in Ohio uh, with liquid natural gas. There's a lot of it traveling over the rails. And a 22-train car tank filled with LNG has the same amount of energy as the Hiroshima bomb. So is that something that troubles you? So I guess if you shut down the rail transportation, the alternative would be by trucks, and that would be even more hazardous, wouldn't it? So by trucks, by barge... Um, by freighter, those are the alternatives to, to rail transport. Well, Andrew Welton, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Andrew Welton, who's a professor of environmental and ecological engineering at Purdue University, whose research focuses on environmental chemistry and engineering, disasters, polymer science, and engineering, water quality, infrastructure, and public health. His team investigates and solves problems that affect our natural and built environments. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon, and this program is available for podcasting at backgroundbriefing.org, where you can sign up for our email updates as well as subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this program, you can help us reach more listeners by taking a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share the program with friends and family and colleagues on Twitter and Facebook. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The headline written
amor la cosa. Ah. 